1: Wednesdays at
2: 5pm Melbourne's Drive Time radio program featuring community organisations powerful stories and information Find us at brainways.org.au Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia
0: Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kaylin and today from the Brainwaves team we have Terry who will be interviewing our guest today, Ingrid Irwin. Ingrid was admitted as a lawyer in 1999 as predominantly practiced in family law, child protection, intervention orders and uh, royal Commissions, including family violence and institutional child sex abuse. In 2016, Ingrid attended the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse in Rome to hear the evidence and the cross examination of George Pell. Ingrid has kindly offered to come on to our show today to talk about her views on how victims of sexual abuse are treated in the legal system as a lawyer and as a victim of abuse herself and the mental health impacts and supports available to survivors. Just a content warning about today's show, we will be discussing child sex abuse so if you feel that this content may be distressing please tune out now and should you need support after listening to the show today please know you can contact Lifeline on 13 1114 or the sexual assault crisis line on 1800 806 292. Now, before we get started, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians in the lands of which I'm coming to you from today. I would like to pay my respects to their Elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening today, also paying my respects to their Elders, past and present and
1: emerging. Welcome, and thank you for agreeing to this interview regarding the Long-Term Mental Health Consequences of Child Sexual Assault. So you've written a memoir, Dolly Incapas, under the pseudonym Cleopatra Jones, regarding your experience of child sexual assault for five years from the age of seven. How did you find writing about that childhood experience?
2: Look, um, a lot of people say that writing a book is really cathartic. Um, For me, I that was my favourite part of the book were my childhood chapters, which is essentially a very small part of the book. It's just sort of the introduction, but I think it was really important and I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed reliving it and trying to get back into my mind of who I was as a child and how I saw the world through that childhood lens and delving back into it. I realised things that that were cumulative, that got me to this place where I am now. It, it wasn't just the sexual assaults. It was the loss of my dog. Like My little pet dog died, this little Jack Russell. Um, and then it was the loss of my cousin. He drowned in front of us all on Australia Day weekend yeah. at Port Arlington yeah. Beach. A, so a, a these sort of set the background for this very devout Roman Catholic family that I was a part of. Mm. And then that um, was really an important backdrop to explain why the disclosure went so pear-shaped. <laughs> so but but just reliving that, there was actually Why the disclosure? What enjoy. do you mean by
1: that, um Ingrid? You've jumped in to something there. Oh yes. So
2: look it was like when I wrote those early Oh, the disclosure chapters of my in writing the book you mean. Yes. It yep. it was like right um it was like almost little tiny um bits of joy through even though what I thought would be just purely traumatic chapters, I actually rediscovered little things of joy like my little strawberry shortcake doll collection and, like, my favourite 80s music and things like that. And so it wasn't just purely tears. Sometimes sometimes it was just... Um, memories would sort of um, come flooding back to me of beautiful things and, and yes. really joyous things as well. But, mm. yeah, there was always this shadow over me of, you know, waiting for the ballet and the weekends. So mm. um, And that sort of clouded everything And can else.
1: you just give a bit of background to, for our listeners about what you mean by waiting for the ballet and the weekends?
2: Yes, yeah, certainly. So, look, while um, on the whole, if someone just came up to me and said, did you like your childhood, I'd say, of course. I love my school. I was just, I lived for school. I love my immediate family. I had two artist parents, you know, that were teachers. What more could I want? They were really liberal um, and we always spoke about everything. We were open, loving family and very demonstrative with our um, affections because, you know, coming from a European background, um, you know, double kisses and and just big hugs and and everyone spoke so loudly as if we're shouting, you know. So um, sort of, yeah, having that sort of um, background was beautiful. But during that childhood and that time, I was sexually assaulted across, you know, from age of seven. I Just a few months, I turned seven in October. And then so it started in December of that year that I'd just yeah. turned seven. So And it went through to the end of um, up to my 11th birthday. So I just turned 11 and then it sort of stopped shortly thereafter. So when I look now as an adult at my now just Just
1: go back and tell us the explanation about the ballet and the saturday waiting for saturday oh yes yes. So,
2: yes it was like my school mm. week was awesome because yep. i didn't have ballet it was like uh, it was you know, just like going to school. And then the weekend would come and Saturday mornings meant ballet lessons. Yes. But ballet lessons, while I loved ballet, and I was really good at it, it also meant sexual assault. And I had to prepare myself because after ballet, I would hang out with my cousins, my two of my first cousins who did ballet with me. Yes. And it was gorgeous because I was an on, only child in the early years. And so going to their house after ballet was to play and have lunch and all of that it was just awesome. But what happened? Their older brother sexually assaulted my his two sisters and me. Yeah. So Saturday meant ballet, well, first violin, then ballet. And then it meant like, I knew he was going to do something to me. So it was just part and parcel of my, Of my weekends
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah. so it was
2: when I look back now and think yeah I had a great time it was very much I can put it in boxes according to the days and the structure of my week yes and really it was my whole primary school years because when I look at it Mm -hmm. it's sort of like grade two through to grade five that's essentially you know the formation of who you are um, through those formative years so it really yeah
1: great thank you so much Ingrid um, I'm very aware that the, we're dealing with very sensitive and painful topics. So we'll try and tread gently here. Sure. Now, can you tell us about when and what prompted your recall of those childhood experiences?
2: Yes, look, um, I, it's very easy. There were essentially three things. And, you know, I did not prepare. It wasn't like all of a sudden in the year 2013, I knew this was going to be the year. Not at all. I didn't even know I was going to tell so what happened is this there were three distinct things there was a funeral two Mm. months before I told police there was a family funeral of my uncle and so he was an in-law and um but the perpetrator was at this funeral and everybody was there it was a huge big ballarat funeral and so we were there and you know across the period of time at the church and then back at the bowling club and you know just Croatians, they talk endlessly for hours, like into the night, you know, eating and drinking. Across that whole time, he did not say hello to me. He did not acknowledge me. Now, I didn't know the effect this would have on me. It's not like, you know, when I heard that, I thought, right, I'm going to tell. But just this was the first thing. The second thing was one month after that funeral, my daughter Charlotte turned seven and when she turned seven something clicked in me because I saw her age that was the age I started being sexually assaulted Mm. and I also had two older boys her older brothers Will and Tom and they were about the same age gap and I could see Charlotte and all of a sudden it's like almost my whole childhood came flooding back and I could see myself I could see she had freckles like me she looked like me she was tall and thin she did ballet like me and I thought oh, my God, like this is who I was at that age and I could see it and I could see the brothers and I thought, they're playing soccer, they're having sleepovers that I don't, you know, they're going camping, they're doing cool stuff. She's still playing with dolls and Play-Doh and just something, all of a sudden I thought, any idea or inkling that I thought it was just child's play, it just went out the door. It was just like it straight away it was made clear to me that what happened to me was sexual assault. It wasn't experimentation or young kids. Much. I could just see that the age differences, it's yes. like um, i describe it as, you know, all of a sudden birthday parties were boys only. It's that, yep. it's that age the boys had hit where boys and girls don't do anything together anymore. They're just sort of like there's a really definite sort of um, yep. distance. Yep. And so yeah. then really um, it was not only those two events, the third event, I knew that my 40th birthday was approaching. And so that was in October and I reported in June. So I think even at the time it wasn't like I've got to do this before I turn 40, but I just now when everyone talks about bucket lists and things like that, I think maybe I was just subconsciously all of these these three things just somehow culminated in me stepping into that police station I I I still don't even know how I did it because I was determined not to do that and it was actually my husband who's a criminal defense lawyer said Ingrid you are too jaded by your work you know you are you are You've got a very jaundiced view. You need to trust that these systems have changed and you need to just become a client. You can't think you can just vicariously heal. You know, you've got to go and be a client. What makes you think you're any better or stronger than someone else? Everyone what- you say, go to the police station and you're not doing it yourself. So I, know, I, I know
1: when I had my first flashback at 35, my reaction, see, I'm not a lawyer, I don't have a oh. legal background, was no. to go to a centre against sexual assault. Oh, so that was my journey, yes, so it, it was it the the fact that you and your husband are lawyers that meant you chose, to, oh well, your husband was saying you need to trust the system, so yes. did you do anything else at, at the same time as going to the police in terms oh, of dealing yes, with?
2: I absolutely did. Um, It was really, I think you're right. There's two parts to, and I'll answer to what you said. Because of that legal background, I think that's right. I think that's why essentially that was the course that I thought was available and that that that's what I should do because I've been practicing since 1999 and you know, directing clients that way, you know, to go mm. to the police station, to go and tell DAGs. And so, so what year was this that you went in and disclosed? 40? Yeah, 2013, not that long oh. ago. Okay. Yeah, so yep. I'm 46 now, so, yeah. Yep. Um, Don't look yeah, a day think, over 20. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Um, but, yeah, it definitely, it's that it's that legal background that yeah. made me do that. But I think, too, what attracted me to practice law was this, that's why I'm so passionate. I've been like a psychopath about sexual assault and law and wanting to be a lawyer since I was very young. So I've always sort of had this sort of social justice quest and that's what made me practice. But I was so, I don't know, I just blocked it out and thought, I can deal with this vicariously. I can vicariously heal through my clients. I'll go on their journey. Oh, yes, I know this turf like the back of my hand and somehow that will heal me. Oh, I don't need to go and do that. Yes, I did. Yes, I actually actually did need to become a client. But um, yeah, I just wish that I'd followed your path. I wish I'd... I love CASA. I'm just like a number of people. All one right. So, so,
1: 2013, you disclosed to the police when did you go to CASA, Centre Against Sexual Assault? Yeah, I only
2: went in 2014. Because oh, just a later. And Through the process of the police, when a, a case fails, they often recommend that you um, make it a VOCAT application or yeah. go to CASA. They'll start oh, to give Can you tell report. our listeners what vocat is? Yes, yes. So, vocat is like a giant legal safety net. It stands for, the acronym stands for Victims of Crime. Assistance tribunal and what that basically is legal goobly gook to, to explain it's a tribunal that's set up there because, well, I'm pretty pessimistic, but I say it's an acknowledgement. That criminal and civil justice doesn't really work for sexual assault victims. Yeah, we only have a one percent conviction rate in sex assault. So this tribunal, ten
1: percent of those cases that go to be prosecuted, and so one percent overall of all the cases that occur. Is that overall of
2: anyone that reports to police, that statistic is based on anyone that reports to police and yes. goes through the whole system at any point. Whatever you know, there's a huge attrition rate at you know the police stage, the OPP yes. stage. Yeah. Um, and then the court stage as we know and then the even the appellate court stage but only one percent get through all of that and it secures a conviction one i must say i'm time. really looking
1: forward to reading your second book because i know oh, yeah, you go going to get quite a bit of detail now you described yourself as a sleeper victim of ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder yes. can you tell us what that means
2: and yes. what it what are its symptoms Sure, sure. Well, look, I only discovered that sleeper victim term in 2015 through my oh. work in the Royal Commission for Child oh, right. um, Sex yep. Assault. Yeah, yep. so what that... Um, oh, you might expert... like to tell the
1: listeners what you've done there because you had a significant role in Yes, that. yes. I yeah. represented
2: clergy abuse victims in the Ballarat Case Study, which is number 28, mm-hmm. and so I went with the survivor group to Rome as well to hear um, George Pell's testimony. Oh, but, yeah, amazing. through that time, one of the expert witnesses her name is Dr. Carolyn Quadrio, and she's brilliant. And she spoke of these sleeper victims. Yes. And what that is, is a term to describe some high-functioning um, person that has a veneer of success like myself. I was the shiny, happy person with children and family and a great career and, oh, nothing phases me and I'm the life of the party and I'm an extrovert and, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't mean anything. What it means is you're eventually going to break. It, it, sleeper victim is where you, you essentially can put it somewhere, compartmentalise it, pack it behind you or somewhere to the side of you, somewhere in you, yep. and then something triggers it and it all comes out. Yep. And so when I heard that, I thought, classic sleeper. I'm a classic sleeper victim. Me mm-hmm. too.
1: Yeah. Um, although there were symptoms all along, but the, the breaking point came in, in midlife. Would you like <laughs> to comment on your experience of remembering uh in say vis-a-vis the average time that child sex assault victim survivors recall
2: and disclose yes yeah look it was fascinating during the royal commission we discovered that the average age it, it takes 33 years to tell and just by chance by fluke i just fit the bill oh, it was 33 years from my sexual assault which is just i suppose it's beside the point but but to me it was like I can't believe it's 33, I thought it was some sort of freak anomaly because in my work a lot of it is contemporary, like, um, you know, someone has just been assaulted or their child's been assaulted. And so as a family lawyer, I would help them with those disclosures and sort of family law case stops while the criminal case um, takes off and, you know, or DHS will be investigating or whatever. Um, But, yeah, so... 33 years I learned I was actually quite normal, I was quite average and then through the Royal Commission um, they actually abolished the statute of limitations so that all of a sudden these sort of middle-aged people walking around like me with these childhood traumas could actually do something, could start to go to the court because before that it was statute barred and so it would open you might page. like me to um, just clarify. That's a big yes. language statute bar. Yes. So what I replied um, was that there was certain period of time that people had to report, and after that it would be too late. But yeah. what they recognised in the Royal Commission that it takes so long, there really should be no time limit, and so they scrapped any time limit whatsoever. You could bring it at any time. You can bring it when you're seventy, eighty. It doesn't. There, you, there's no time limit to bring. Yeah a case about child sexual assault. But what I discovered through my legal work is that, um, and I met an amazing lady, she was one of the first test cases that um, trialled that new legislation. Um, But what happens is that very passage of time when you go and make that application to the court, yeah, you can make the application, but when you make it, that same passage of time can knock you out because often a judge will decide that that passage of time is too great For the defendant to actually fairly defend their allegations because they might have ABI, acquired brain injury, or, you know, just that's too too long ago for me to remember this sort of thing. So, a lot of cases, including Scott Volkers against some of the Olympic swimmers, Sam Riley, and so forth, that's made media attention. Um, A lot of these cases you'll find if you look up. You know, it sounds wonderful on paper, but these cases are all getting knocked out because of that very passage of time. So it's kind of, you know, bittersweet. Um, Yes. yes. Thank you. Um, Now,
1: can you tell us what you've done in your healing journey from those child sexual assaults? Yeah, and look, what I've been a busy
2: helpful woman. The <laughs> um, main helpful. thing that I've done, because I'm just a speaker, like from when I was a very young girl, I'm always public speaking at school and just right the way through. Everything is about telling, telling as many people as I can. Um, I started with my first husband, who I divorced from many years ago, but it's very friendly and we raised the children together. That's lovely. But I first told him because I knew it was safe. He wouldn't tell anyone, so there were no consequences. Then I told my second husband, you know, my current husband, um, and I thought I was safe with him too but he kept bugging me and you know nagging me and said look you're not right this is all going to explode you know you've got to do something so I told him that was less safe because he was more a mover shaker than my first husband and um, that caused me to tell but then I told my family I told my yeah. mum and dad that was a beautiful moment they believe me I'm so lucky I know a lot of um, survivors lucky, out there that we've had
1: that. Lucky woman,
2: yeah. Lucky, yeah. very lucky. And so they um, totally believe me and just have stood by me, but we've lost the whole entire massive Catholic family. They are just, they completely don't want to know us. So that was a huge price. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so I told them and then obviously I told the police and yep. you know, in, in this order that I'm following, I told the police. Then I told, um, I started telling different courts. I told the magistrate's court as part of the committal because that's where my case got up to before they knocked uh, it out. Can you ta- our listeners i'm not quite sure what committal means yes that's a committal hearing is the first time that a survivor is actually actively engaged in a police case so the police case against your perpetrator that's the first time you actually come to court Uh, that's wrong i would redesign it completely but that in the system we've currently got that's the first time that a survivor really comes to the court is for that committal hearing when they start to give evidence because the magistrate needs to test whether it's a strong enough case to go to trial so it's like a little mini trial yeah so i i told that court for that but then when that was knocked out i had to tell the magistrates court again in another court matter just to be able to get my freedom of speech back I had to apply for this suppression order to be revoked because this I didn't realize was still sitting there and it would still be sitting there and until I applied to get rid of it. It would silence me forever until the day I die. So I had to make an application in 2015 when they knocked it out in 2014 when they knocked it out, made this application to revoke that took eight months and I won, but the magistrate said, you have to bear your own costs because you're unusual to want to speak as a victim so you can bear your own costs now this is outrageous to listeners because always costs follow a win when you win a court case it's not disputed you get your costs this magistrate was teaching me a lesson because i came back to revoke his order that he'd made um which suppression orders i could talk for hours
1: (laughs) so i told that. any other
2: things that you've done
1: in your
2: healing journey Yes, yes. Then um, after that, I told the uh, Vocat Tribunal. Yep. Then I told the County Court when I sued my perpetrator. Then, alongside that, I've told three psychologists. Why psychologist, were you private suing psychologist your
1: perpetrator? What was that about?
2: About the the County Court. Yeah, so that was to sue the perpetrator for what's called personal injury. A lot of survivors, when they don't get traction in the criminal justice system, they will look to see any other options to be validated and to have that, that crime acknowledged. But what happens is it morphs into this civil area where it's really like like personal injury and sort of it takes the crime aspect out of it and looks at oh well regardless are you injured is there psychological or physical injury of more than 10 percent so that's sort of the amount so I had to speak to psychologists about that but again I enjoyed that experience I I think psychology and psychologists are brilliant if you could bypass the criminal justice system and just go to psychologists and get the help you need that is what i recommend because they are professionals they believe you you don't have to go through this three ring circus it's just like you're validated your truth and you have a space to explore it that's, that's right. safe yeah. and you know, it, it is ridiculous. 99% of us, as brave as me, we all end up on the scrap heap of the criminal justice system. So it's really important. And then I didn't just stop there with those psychologists. I Once I got my suppression order revoked, I went public, I went to the newspaper, I go on social media as much as possible and try and mm-hmm. demystify this legal I really, I really appreciate what you put up on Facebook. I I think it's so important not enough lawyers are conceited smug people like they they should be telling what it is like this is I do not lie like it is so toxic that really my my experience with CASA I thought it was just going to be about the sexual assaults but I would love them to do a survey and I asked them if they have this data and they currently don't I'd love them to find out how many clients are there because of the actual sexual assaults as in dealing with that how many are there because of the legal re-trauma of trying to seek justice for it? And, and I think that would be really interesting in terms of what are we doing with all of these survivors? And, you know, the, the money that government saves, you know, in one branch is actually getting spent here and, and sort of bulging out on the health side for survivors because it's just we are left in the worst unenviable position. And, I, like, that's what I really want to get out there, that a survivor should tell, they absolutely, but they should tell the health system, not the legal system. That is what, that is, I 100% say that. knocking, Knocking on the legal system's door and telling them they need to lift their game. I outrageous. Suppose. I've gone and I've gone to the Attorney General, to our Premier, to Ministers, the Minister for Victim Support. I've gone to um, the, at the moment the Commissioner for Victims, you know. I've gone everywhere and I write this in detail and they know that I know this stuff and I trot it out. But you know, they always tell me how much they're doing. But victim support is one thing. That's emotional support. That's like providing the dog in the witness box for them to pat so that the actual experience of the criminal justice system is more comforting. But I'm talking about justice. None of those things that they are doing and money they're spending on actually improves the chance of justice. And this is what I want to get across to listeners that, and I hear it from clients every day, They are there because, and they tell, because they want acknowledgement. When they go to the police station, they want acknowledgement for the crime. They don't want to be treated just well by a nice, friendly policeman that believes them. That's not going to get legal traction. That doesn't actually mean anything. What they are looking for is a piece of paper that just says guilty, something, some tangible something. And I'm a walking experience and example of the fact that you can go through the legal system and do everything right... And you will be turfed out it doesn't matter it's like hearing the premier say you know when when um, the high court made its decision in the pell case he said i see you survivors i see you i hear you and i believe you and all the survivors thought it's such a wonderful thing and it does sound good you know on the face of it it's certainly better than it
1: was say 20 or 40 50 years ago Really, things have moved on and improved since then Can you give what sort of advice would you give to our listeners who may resonate with your story?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the thing is to not back down. Absolutely have your voice. Respect your voice. Nobody is a better expert on this stuff than you as the survivor. The survivor is the expert above anyone else, legal, political, um, even psychologists, anyone. You know, you're, you are the expert of your life. And so don't let anyone walk on you, step on you, even take a skerrick of, you know, your self-respect. If you build yourself up, and find the courage to tell someone you keep telling that person or you keep going through. Don't back down. Don't think, oh, they didn't really respect me. If you don't like the counsellor, go and get another one. You know, yeah. doctor shop like that. Go, go psychologist shop, whatever. Find someone where you've got an affinity with them, where you feel very comfortable with them. Just just find the right match because yeah. never doubt yourself. That isn't the problem. It's often not the survivor. It's the system that isn't responding yeah. with respect yeah. to you. So, Thank, so,
0: you.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. And last question, can you um, give
2: us some information about where people can find your books? Yes, yeah, okay. So in the world of self-publishing, it's a bit tricky. Yep. It's not like I'm on every stand and, you know, being publicised by a nice publisher, which is a shame. But, yeah, Amazon, They're the usual places, um, Barnes & Noble. If you go on there and you um, Google Dolly Inca Packs or um, Dolly Prosecuit. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. So that's my pseudonym for the first book, but the second one is um, under my own name. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, so if you Google those um, and go on there, you know, ebooks are very, very cheap, I think under $10 both the titles, but the um, the hard copy, you know, takes some time, you know, to be printed because it's on yes. demand. But they're yes. there and, um, yeah, look, I'm very truthful. I, the trigger warning for the first book is really um, about the childhood sexual assault itself. It's just It's about the first 50 or 60 pages. But... The rest of it is really my criticisms of the legal system because yes. I don't tell my story to sort of um, be cr- gratuitous or you know anything like that. I don't think it really matters. I'm going to say something a bit out there. I don't think the actual sexual assaults matter, the, like the actual how many times or or what the nature of them was or whether it was by an object or a body part or whatever. I think what's more important is the responses. We all share the PTSD from it, yes. and so That's I sometimes automatic. use the example yeah. that you know we. When you look at the ptsd of war veterans yes. we don't sit there and say well how many people did you kill and how many war wounds did you have and were you in the trenches on the front line or were you down you know the back thing you know having fun with the nurse you know we don't question it we just say straight away here's your badge of honor my god you're what but sexual assault no 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 we look at it, the best we could do our intelligent minds, we put a matrix there and we grade abuse and we say how many times, how many things, I mean, it's ridiculous, you can't, it's not like saying did you lose a left arm in a a crash or your right arm and did you, you know, right with your right arm, it's not analytical like that, we should not be approaching it like that. Mm -hmm. Um, What we share are the after effects and we should have access to really good counselling and, and, you know, help that recognises this and, and not divide survivors with, you know, granting them some huge awards under vocat not others and it gets really ugly you don't want to divide the survivor community yeah. we're already a traumatized yeah. bunch <laughs> thank you so much
0: ingrid for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge and insight with our listeners and a big thank you to terry for organizing today and interviewing today if anything you have heard in today's show has caused you any distress please know you can contact lifeline on 13114 or the sexual crisis Salt Crisis Line on 1800 806 292. I hope that everyone has found something in today's show that will be beneficial to them. And just a reminder that I will be adding Ingrid's details to our show notes for today so you can check them out. You can find more of our shows at our website brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website 3CR.org.au or on Spotify or wherever you download any of your 3CR podcasts. If you have a story you'd like to share with us or if you'd like to send us some feedback or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Uh, please email us at brainwaves at Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.